Hey y'all, I'm Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 172. Well, I'm back to normal-ish, and Donna still dying. <laughs> I'm on recovery road-ish. No, she is. <laughs> she got all the tests done. She's, you know, not sick, question mark. <laughs> don't have mono, don't have COVID, don't have... The flu, don't have strep. Right. Just have upper respiratory shit. Yep. But you got medicine, and we're on the road to Kansas City. So you may have heard us talk about on the last episode that the True Crime Podcast Festival is a go this year. So when this comes out, well, we'll be on our way home. And we had a great time. So in honor of being in Kansas City for the True Crime Podcast Festival, we decided to do the story a little bit differently because, well, one, Donna's still sick, and less talking for her right now means she can do more talking in Kansas City. But don't think we didn't forget. Patreoners! So thank you so much, Sarah R. from Ohio. Hunter from Kansas. Stephanie T. from California. Jimmy E. from New Jersey. Tabitha C. from California. Ashley S. from Georgia. Hillary C. from Minnesota. Kelsey M. from North Carolina. Priscilla R. from Illinois. And Katie C. from Oregon. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. Because of your support, we're able to have Will, who's in charge of all post-production things like editing and getting the episodes uploaded, the website, all those amazing things that y'all get to see. Will helps us manage because, well, he's Will and we love him. So thank y'all so much for helping us keep this podcast floating. We all float down here. Y'all should Donna can't talk, but y'all can see her face. Y'all can't see it. Never mind. Okay, bye. So together, Donna and I are going to cover the Kansas City Massacre and the lives of two outlaws that their paths cross, leading one of them to become public enemy number one and changing the FBI as we know it today. Okay, so let's start first with a guy by the name of Charles Arthur Floyd. He preferred to go by the nickname Chalk. So apparently he really liked Choctaw beer And that's why he liked the name Chalk. However, he was more known for the nickname Pretty Boy. And I'll go into that a little bit later. So we'll call him Pretty Boy throughout the whole thing. But he was born in 1904 in Georgia. He was one of seven kids. And his parents moved to a farming community in Oklahoma to become tenant farmers. They were very, very poor. Basically, they were living even less than paycheck to paycheck because they were just trying to stay as much as they can out of foreclosure. But between plagues and the Dust Bowl and everything that was happening at the time, the production for farmers was non-existent. And so it became this big struggle for small farmers to keep their land and to not have to go into foreclosure or sell out to larger companies. So his family eventually started bootlegging in order to make ends meet. When he was 16, he got married to a girl named Ruby Hargrove, and eventually they had a son named Jack. Pretty boy would, you know, he tried to kind of do it the right way. Well, I mean, he bootlegged and stuff, but he, you know, tried to do it the farming and all of that, and it just wasn't working. So eventually he started traveling, looking for work, living in like hobo camps and stuff like that to try to find work and make ends meet like that. But eventually, that wasn't working either, and he had family he had to provide for, so he took what little money he had, and he bought himself a gun. And by the time he was 18, he committed his first crime. He robbed a post office for $350 in pennies. Do you know how heavy that is? <laughs> Do you know how heavy that is? Well, he's a farmer, so I'm guessing not very heavy for him. No, that's still heavy. Yeah, but, I mean... And then to schlep that all the way I back to your house. I was going to say, like, how are you going to, you can't run with that. And it's like, he was born in 1904. So he's 18. So whatever that math is, 22, 1922. I can't do math. I mean, what, he's, I mean, he's not like, he's like, oh, let me just throw it in my trunk. Yeah. Let me throw it over my back and gallop. Oh, hell no. Well, he was arrested for suspicion of this, but his dad gave him an alibi. So he got away with it. And that was kind of what sparked his like, 
okay, okay, this is like easy money. Like, I can fucking do this. Like, I got this, right? So he ended up taking the train to St. Louis where he robbed a Kroger store. I know, Kroger, Kroger. right? I know, I was like, Kroger's been around that long? Okay, y'all, look, I'm heavy breathing, so I've been like laying back. And so that's why she was like, yeah, I know, right? That's how long it took me to to like lean up. <laughs> so she knew I was coming up to say, Kroger? Right. So, yeah. Some stuff said he got $11,000. Some stuff said he got $16,000. But I also don't know if that's in like today's money or yesteryear money. (laughs) Yesteryear? I'm sorry. I didn't know Tiffany was my (laughs) co-host. Oh, gosh. Well, the thing is, he got away with it. But that money was burning a hole in his fucking pocket. And so when he got home over the next few weeks, he started spending that fucking money. He was buying clothes. He was going out to eat. He was doing all the things that you do in the early 1900s when you have money to burn. He even bought a fucking car. Pretty boy. So the police were like, um, tap, 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 tap it in. Sir, what the fuck? How you got this money? Where you been? What you doing? And they figured it out. And so they arrested him because when they went to his house, they found some of the money still in the wrappers. Oh, my gosh. So he was sentenced to five years in Jefferson City Penitentiary. So while he was in jail for this is when Jack was born. And Ruby filed for divorce while he was in prison, citing neglect. Because I think that you, like, back then, you really had to have a reason. You know, you couldn't just be like, oh, irreconcilable differences. Like, a woman had to be like, no, he tried to kill me. You know, like, you you know, you had to be like, oh, he's neglectful because he's in prison. You couldn't just divorce somebody because you didn't like him. You know, fucking 1900s. So, he ended up getting released after just three years and was like, okay, I'm not fucking doing this shit again. I am never going back to prison. Fuck this. That is not for me. Orange is not in my color wheel. I am not going back. <laughs> so this next part is allegedly, but I mean, it kind of fits the mold. So I'm going to tell it anyway. So allegedly, one time he went to visit his parents on their farm. Again, remember, early 1900s communication, not what it is today. He found out that his dad had been shot to death in this family feud with this guy named Jay Mills. And he found out that the guy that allegedly had shot his dad in this feud was acquitted. And he was pissed. So Pretty Boy took his dad's rifle, went up on the hill where that guy lived, and he was never seen again. Like the guy that the killed guy. his dad. Okay. So it's rumored that he murdered the guy that murdered his dad, but there's no proof. But like, where'd he go? Who knows? In the 20s, he moved to Ohio and started basically being a hired gun for some bootleggers that like went up and down the Ohio River selling alcohol during Prohibition. I mean, I could Google this myself, but why do you think they call them bootleggers? I'm going to guess that they stored the alcohol in the boot of their leg. The boot of their leg? The leg of their boot. The boot on part of their leg. But like, yeah, but that's... Okay, so why didn't they just call them booties? You know what I mean? Like, bootleggers. Okay. The term bootlegger seems originally to have been used by white persons in the Midwest in the 1800s to note the practice of concealing a flask of liquor in the boot tops while trading with Native Americans. Okay, yeah. I was right. Well, duh. I mean, that makes sense. I'm not, duh. So I'm right. Just say it. (laughs) Literally, everyone knows that. But like, well, I didn't know with Native Americans, but why is it bootleggers? Because they're the people doing the legging. Like you're a schlepper. Well, why isn't it a boot walker? A boot runner? Because it's a bootleg. So you're a bootlegger. <laughs> so stupid. Like words. And rum runners. Bootleggers and rum runners. Okay, but why is it a rum runner then? Because they got to run the rum. <laughs> rum gets you frisky. 
okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. It's just so funny how words are invented. Like, right. You know what no, I mean? No, I know. I'm totally making things up as we talk. Well, duh. Clearly. But, like, Well, and letters. how, like, just, like, the way you say something morphs, like, like, okay, my dad's name shortened, like, by his initials is T.P. And so, when you say it quickly, it sounds like Tippy. T.P. 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 And so, people just started calling him T.P., like T.I.P.P.Y. And so, like, that's his nickname now, T.P. Yeah. And so, it's like, like, that truly is how a lot of words are formed. Yeah. And there's like a, there's like a whole TikTok, like a whole side of TikTok on this that I have found one day. I don't know where it went. I lost it. But there is a whole side of TikTok on this. After he left this Ohio area, he then came to what was called Tomstown, which is what's now known as Kansas City. And this was run by a guy named Tom Pendergast. So this guy was big time gangster, like exactly what you think of when you think of Kansas City gangster. I mean, hello. Did you watch the Ozarks? No. You didn't? Only the first season. Oh. We talked about this. I forgot. Well, this is where he became pretty boy. This is where he became the the gangster, quote unquote, that he was. There's a couple of different reasons they say why he has the name pretty boy. Because he hated that name. Like, he wanted to be known as Chalk. Because he hated the name pretty boy. So, one of them was that he was so, like narcissist that every time he walked by a mirror he would like fix himself and so people would call him pretty boy behind his back another one was that you know they were always in and out of brothels and that one time when he was there there was a madam that was like i'll have you for myself pretty boy and that that stuck so either way that's how he got the name pretty boy and he hated it but that's what we're going with because that's like the moniker that he was known by. But it's also said too, though, that him and the Balula Bayard, who is the alleged madam for the one that gave him the nickname, that they had a relationship like throughout their lives, like hustling people together. Like they would pretend to be husband and wife to like, like hustle people out of stuff, you know? So I don't know. I feel like maybe that's more how he got the nickname than. I mean, I'm sure to an extent him like primping and stuff, but I feel like that's probably a little bit more. Now, okay, of course, we don't know if all of these stats are true. It is alleged, though, that over a 12-year span, he robbed 30 banks and killed 10 men. And that during his spree of robbing banks, the insurance rates at banks doubled. You know they hated him. Well, and of course, just in Oklahoma, like where he was robbing. Well, and here's the thing. He was actually kind of a like folklore hero because what is alleged. Now, there's literally no proof of this, but allegedly word on the street is when he would rob these banks, he would go in there and he would rip up all these people's mortgage notes So all of these tenant farmers and just farmers in general who were about to foreclose on their land and were like behind on all of these notes, he would go in there and rip them up. And you don't have the note, you don't know the money. And so it would sometimes save them from losing their land. So it was almost like a a Robin Hood type thing, like, you know, stealing from the rich, giving to the poor kind of thing. So he got this like folklore about him where people when he was running from the cops and stuff would kind of hide him out and stuff because he had this like folklore about him where people believed that he was doing good for them even though he was robbing banks well yeah he's getting he's stealing from these banks but while he's in there he's ripping up your bank notices yeah he was a people's person right but there was literally nothing to prove like, there's, I don't think there's any evidence proven that he actually did that. Yeah, because it's revved up. Well, okay. Another thing, too, that got people like, wait, what? Because one time when he was arrested, he jumped out of a moving train on the way to the penitentiary, like, still in handcuffs to escape. Because, you know, he was like, I am not fucking going back to jail. So that's how he escaped. He was like a master escape artist. And so... 
again, it just kind of built up and built up his lore, I guess would be the word, about him. Well, much like Pretty Boy Floyd was Frank Jelly Nash, who is our other outlaw we're going to talk about. He was a master outlaw con man, escape bore, escapee, escapist, something. So he was raised very differently. He was not raised as a poor tenant farmer. He was actually raised with a little bit of money. He was born in Indiana in 1887, and he grew up with two sisters, two stepbrothers, and his dad was a hotel entrepreneur. In 1902, his dad moved the family to Oklahoma because he bought and started a hotel. And Frank Nash would, we're call him Nash, Nash would cook in the kitchen, do the work around the hotel, but like it wasn't his thing. Like he was like, this is not the life of me. Like I am not, look, I did not go to school for, what is that, hotel What's that that degree you said you wish you knew about in high school because you would have gone for? Hotel tourism and management? Yeah. He's like, this is not for me. And his dad actually gave the business over to one of Nash's sisters. And he was like, fine by me. Bye. Every time I think about a hotel, I think about Dunstan Checks In. Do you remember that movie? Uh Uh-uh. Never heard of it. Are you kidding me? Uh Uh-uh. The monkey? Uh, uh, uh. With a the hat? Yeah. There's always a monkey with a hat. I, I was about a to bell say. A bellboy. Always a monkey with a hat, bellboy. Yeah. It's literally always. So, he's like, all right, I got to get out of here. Small town. I am Nash. Like, got to go. Bye. I am Nash and I got a dash. Right. Eventually, when he was 17, he joined the army, was there for three years. Literally, there was nothing in his childhood, joined the army, all the things that was going to indicate that he was going to become this fucking outlaw. But here we are. So, okay. How did he get the nickname Jelly? Right? Because weird. Well, they say that they think maybe it was a shortened name from when he was a kid. They called him Jelly Bean. And they just shortened it to Jelly. But Jelly is also slang used by gangsters for nitroglycerin. And nitroglycerin was like like kind of gelatinous. And they would use it for explosives. To like put on safes to like explode for after they robbed places. Oh. So it's either he's a jelly bean or he's like, because he robbed all these places and he had to use gelatinous jelly from nitroglycerin to blow up the safes. I thought it was because he made his pawns like jelly because he escaped from so many different places. He's not Alex Mack. <laughs> I literally thought that's what it was from. You shouldn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back to Dunstan Checks in. <laughs> Go back to your suit of bed. (laughs) (laughs) So, all in all, it's said that Nash had over 200 bank robberies. Yeah, he like fucking blew Pretty Boy out the water with his 30 bank robberies. Okay. Chump change. Just kidding. Don't rob banks. Okay. I'm sure Pretty Boy was like, penny for your thoughts. I've got 350. (laughs) Oh, good. Nash had a few convictions, but he was the ultimate con artist. And that's where I think that he and Pretty Boy were different. Nash was more of the con artist, whereas Pretty Boy was more of, like, the outlaw. Like, like what you think of when you think of the 20s gangster, you know? Whereas Nash could talk his way out of a wet paper bag also i keep wanting to say pony boy instead of pretty boy oh love pony boy that movie i know but read the book too but (laughs) every time i think of it i think of the movie because i saw the movie before i read the book in school Uh, and it makes my stomach hurt like from anxiety anyway the outsiders if you don't know what we're talking about okay one time though he nash being he and one of his partners at the time 
had robbed a bank and they had a little falling out and Nash was like, fuck you. I'm going to take all the money. Shot the guy in the back and ran off with the money. Cops called him and he was sentenced to life in prison. Well, Nash being Nash, buddied up to the fucking warden. While he's got a life in prison for shooting his buddy in the fucking back. Literally, cold blood shot his buddy in the back. And convinces the warden that he's going to rejoin the army. Because it's 1918. And the United States is in World War One, And he convinces the warden, I'm going to get out and I'm going to re-enlist in the army. If you'll just let me out. And so the warden was like, am I right? And let him fucking out. His sentence was commuted. So he re-enlisted, saw combat just for a couple more months, and then got discharged from the army. Whoa. Yeah. So, like, the power of the fucking warden. Like, there's no parole board. There's no, like, they just, like, could be like, all right, commute your sentence. There's no governor action. You know, it's just like, all right. So when he gets out of the army, he starts robbing banks again. In 1920, he gets convicted again for robbing a bank in Oklahoma. This time, he's sentenced to 25 years. While he's in prison, he's chumming it up with the prison staff, good behavior, all the shit, convinces them to let him out after just two years on good behavior. Two years! And by 1922, he is released and he is back out with his friends robbing banks again. Literally thought you were going to say back out with his cock out, but okay. Well, I mean, he could be. I don't know what he's into. He's been in prison for two years. Pretty sure with his cock out. Well, the little gang of people that he met up with when he got out of prison, they all robbed banks together across that Oklahoma area and then split up a year later. He went down to Mexico because I think that the police were kind of on to him. So he went down to Mexico and married a woman who lived there. And he tried to forge the license so that it looked like the date, like he tried to backdate it, basically, because he wanted to create an alibi for himself. And so when he crossed the border, coming back into the States a couple of months later, he was arrested and they didn't buy the whole backdated wedding thing. So he got sentenced to another 25 years. While he was in prison for this 25 years, he convinced this warden he's a model inmate all the things and unlike before he didn't convince the warden to let him go he convinced the warden to make him a trustee and so he got all these special privileges as a trustee and so one day he's out doing trustee shit and just fucking walks off never comes back oh my god So, it's said that Nash had a very recognizable appearance. So, he had like a very distinct nose. He was bald. So, that was part of, you know, him always kind of getting caught too. Like, he would do a robbery, get caught, kind of talk his way out of it. Because he was so fucking recognizable. Just had this very distinct nose. Just very distinct appearance. And so, at one point, he did get married to this woman. And they lived under the last name Moore for a little while. But eventually, in like 1933, they said that he even had plastic surgery to straighten his nose. He would wear toupees to try to cover his head. You know, all the things. He was working mostly in hot springs with the gang members there. And it was a very... You got to think, too, at the time, all these places that had all this high gangster activity, a lot of the law enforcement had been infiltrated by these, by the mafia. And so you didn't know who to trust. You know, the FBI that wasn't even the FBI at that point, but they were just considered peace officers. They didn't even carry guns and they had to rely on the local police who oftentimes were themselves corrupt to make arrests and that sort of thing that who could then in turn just let their buddies go. So Nash is in Hot Springs working with some pretty big mafia names. Like they say that he even worked with the Capones. He worked with Ma Barker. Like just, you know, these big names. So this last arrest in Hot Springs The police, along with some agents, were going to take him, him being Nash, 
to Fort Smith, where they were then going to board a train for Kansas City. And then from there, go on to the penitentiary. And it was all supposed to be pretty hush-hush because, again, you don't know what police officers are in on it. What's, you know, you don't want anyone to come bust him out, yada, yada, yada. So on June 16th of 1933, agents Frank C. Smith and F. Joseph Lackey from the Bureau in Oklahoma City are the ones that spotted Nash outside of this cigar store. They're the ones that arrested him. They drove him to Fort Smith, where they're going to take him to Kansas City to then go on to prison. At the train station is where they were going to meet more officers. But again, keeping this whole route secret because they didn't want someone to try to come and free him or anything like that. It's said that the agents even joked with Nash about his disguise at the time because he had this red wig to cover up the bald spot on his head and that Nash told him, I paid 100 bucks for it in Chicago. You do what you can. And that he told him about getting his nose straightened and that he told them, don't pull too hard on my mustache. It's the real thing. But apparently word did spread in Hot Springs about his arrest. A guy by the name of Herb Farmer told Vern Miller that Nash was under arrest and they needed to go get him, basically. So when they got to the station, Agent Lackey told Agent Smith to stay with Nash in the stateroom so that he could look at the platform just to make sure that their contacts of the local police were there. He could check the credentials, make sure everything was kosher. And then he asked them, okay, let's look at the area. Let's make sure nobody's here that's not supposed to be here. They did their thing, and they're like, all right, let's go. Nash is, you know, in handcuffs. He's coming down the train platform. Agents Lackey and Smith do both have shotguns, and so does a police chief named Odo Reed. At first, Nash was going to, because, you know, the the cars, you have to, like, fold down the seat to get into the back seat. So at first, Nash was going to get into the back seat, and they told him, no, don't get in the back seat. Get in the front seat. So Lackey, Smith, and Reed got into the back, and then Nash got into the front seat, and then Agent Caffrey walked around going towards the driver's side, when all of a sudden, from across the parking lot, he hears, up, up, get him up, and he's, like, frozen, and he sees three men standing like on their cars, on the running boards, like straight, exactly what you think of in the movies, pointing machine guns back at them. They're waving their guns at them. And the detective, W.J. Red Grooms, who was one of the local detectives there, pulls out his gun and shoots two shots first, hitting one of the bad guys coming to attack the law enforcement. As soon as he was shot, they heard him shout, let him have it. And then bullets started flying. Bullets pierced through the car, shattering the glass. Agent Caffrey fell into the pavement, dead before he even hit the ground. Police Chief Reed was shot several times in the chest, fell to the floor of the car. The agents Smith and Lackey were both hit multiple times, fell forward onto the floorboard. But Lackey was able to kind of pull himself up and get a few rounds off with his revolver, but then his weapon was shot out of his hand. And then an agent by the name of Vetterly and then the detectives Grooms and Hermanson were all shot, fell to the pavement, scrambling as fast as they can. Inside the car, Nash is literally waving his hands with his handcuffs in the air like, hello, do you see me? Saying to them, for God's sakes, don't shoot me. But of course he was killed and basically his head was blown off it was pretty gruesome there were people there i mean of course it's a freaking train station there's people running and scattering everywhere you know falling to the ground covering their heads hiding behind cars and they're screaming they're killing everybody bullets were just firing and bouncing everywhere the detectives grooms and hermanson were eventually killed After they had scrambled away, the bullets that were ricocheting everywhere, they ended up going and shooting them too. And 
Agent Vetterly was the only one left alive. And I honestly, sorry, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, but he was wounded and there were five men dead. Agent Caffrey, Chief Reed, the detectives Hermanson, Grooms, and Frank Nash. Witnesses had identified the killers as Vern Miller, Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, and Adam Rochetti. And this had been dubbed the Kansas City Massacre. So, of course, there are theories. Of course. What Carrie just told y'all was the story that everyone went with, including J. Edgar Hoover, you know, the guy over FBI. However, it's thought that this is what they went with because they would have a solution to this terrible shootout or massacre as they were labeling it. So it's like, yeah, see, luckily they all had their guns on them. So they were able to stop more people being killed because they had guns and this wasn't the norm. So shortly after this whole ordeal, President FDR passed the law that gave the FBI basically more authority and made it where they didn't need local police to make arrests or deal with criminals. Anyway, they could carry their own guns now, which again, wasn't the norm before this. Yeah, I think I even said they're considered more like peace officers where they didn't carry the guns and they weren't allowed to make arrests. They had to have the local law enforcement to come make the arrest. And so this was a game changer Yeah, for creating the FBI as we know it today. And J. Edgar Hoover became the longest running head of the FBI literally ever. I mean, the building's named after him. Yeah. But that theory of whodunit kind of falls apart because in October 1934, both Floyd and Rochetti were spotted in Ohio. And after a little showdown at the Golden Corral, Rochetti was apprehended and Floyd was killed while he was, like, I don't know, tiptoeing through the tulips. Like, literally running across the field. Kind of. Oh, really? Kind of. So, one of the articles that I found, it was more, like, he was in that car wreck, that he that Rochetti was in that car wreck with him to like, mm-hmm. like where they shot him up and he got away. And then he like ran to this basically farmer's house and the farmer was away and he went to the door and like knocked on her door and was like, Hey, can I come in? And she was like, he was like, I'm just really hungry kind of thing. And she was like, um, cause her husband wasn't home. And yeah. so she like gave him a little bit of food. And then when her husband was home, got home he was about to drive him to the train station when all of a sudden all this law enforcement like swarmed up and is like in all these cars and as soon as they did he jumped out and ran into the barn and they were like and killed him oh and like to his deathbed maintained his innocence yeah definitely well and yeah that's the whole thing when they did the whole you know examination thing in the morgue there was no scar on Floyd's shoulder that should have been there from the Kansas City Massacre. Then to further proclaim their innocence, before Rochetti was executed in 1938, again, he swore that both he and Floyd had no part in the massacre. And yes, they can lie, you know, at the end of their life, they can lie. But some people are going to be like, you know what? We did do it. Right. You know, just to be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at that point, it kind of was a thing. Yeah, like, what do you have to gain at this point? Yeah. But if they didn't do it, who done it? Well, we do know that Vern Miller was one of the shooters, just like Carrie had said. And police followed him after the massacre to his home, but he had already gone, only left behind some bloody rags. So, Miller and his girlfriend, Vivian, they had made their way to Chicago, but four months later, the police found out they were in this apartment in Chicago, raided their place, but again, Miller was already gone, but his girlfriend was behind, and she was taken into custody. 
why does all this matter? Because a month later, on November 29th, Vern Miller makes another appearance, but he isn't alive. His naked body was found with his hands and feet bound together in a ditch outside of Detroit. Miller's body showed clear signs of severe torture because almost every inch had been completely mutilated. His attacker or attackers had burned him with flat irons. His body was bruised and beaten. An ice pick had been used on his tongue as well as his face. Oh, God. And the finishing touch was some heavy object that they had used to crush his skull. So people were saying, obviously, this was some kind of mob hit. You know, like, definitely sending a message. Well, everyone in the criminal underbelly had pretty much been saying that it wasn't Floyd and Rachetti ever since they had claimed it wasn't them. But instead, it was two men named Maurice Denning and Willie Solly Weissman. Well, it could just be a weird dink or nah, but Weissman ended up being murdered only two weeks after the authorities found Miller's body. And Weissman's body showed similar beatings and torture, and his body was found on the side of the road, this time in Chicago. And Maurice Denning was never seen again, so I don't know his story. But, I mean, he vanished. So I don't know. Like, like um, vanished like a fart in the wind. Right. And so then another theory or question kind of comes into play. Were they killed because they didn't rescue Frank Nash? Or were they simply killed as loose ends? Because one big theory is that no one was trying to rescue Frank Nash, but to kill him instead. Because he was tied to a lot of big, big names in the criminal world. So if he was in custody, it's kind of, you know, a doggy dog world. And theory goes that the bigwigs in the mob world, they were scared that he would name names to stay out of prison or for any deal. So they hired people to kill Nash and then, of course, had to kill those three to cover up that they had killed one of their own. Then the last theory is that it may have been a federal agent who killed Frank Nash. This theory says it was an accidental shooting because when everything started happening, there was an agent in the back seat who tried to, you know, kick into gear and he didn't really know how to handle the 16-gauge shotgun he had, and it was loaded with steel ball bearings instead of the lead buckshot that it was, like, normally loaded with. Well, somehow, in all the commotion, the shotgun went off and took most of Nash's head. And also, Agent Caffrey, like Carrie said, who was in the front seat with Nash. Well, they say that some of the ball bearings were still in that fatal wound in that agent's body during his autopsy. That shows, like, you know, like it was improperly loaded and all of that. But again, it's it's a theory. But of course, this building is over a century old. And all of the activity, emotional trauma from the massacre, from people traveling, from the wars that it's seen, everything, all of that trauma, everything, you know it has to be haunted. Well, then the building's flooring is made of sandstone, marble, and concrete. And a lot of people say, you know, energy can be stored. And there's even still bullet holes from the massacre in the front walls of the station, Security guards have claimed to see apparitions in their security cameras, but mistaking it for someone being there, they go investigate, but only find the place empty. People have claimed to hear rowdiness, like the hustle and bustle of crowds of people at night, and even train horns at night, and this is when no trains are running and there's no crowds in sight. There are several bathrooms that are supposedly haunted. There is a visitor in one bathroom washing their hands when they heard someone 
from the stall say, I'll be out in one minute. But they knew no one else was in the bathroom at the time that they were washing their hands. But of course, there's one ghost that's thought to be Frank Nash. You can hear his shoes walk the length of the station, like his final walk from the train to the police car. Others claim to see men in dark suits outside the building where the massacre took place, like they're waiting or something, but when you approach them or try to talk to them, they vanish. On CaseyGhost.com, Becky Ray wrote that her and her team did like an investigation at Union Station a couple of years ago. And during the investigation, a security guard came up and told them that they had saw a man sitting on the bench in the historical room and they sent a guard down to investigate it because no one should have been there at that time. Well, when the guard arrived, dispatch was like, uh, you're right in front of him, like, there it is. But the guard didn't see anyone. Yeah, and so, like, dispatch was like, he's literally right in front of you. And the guard is like, are you fucking with me? Like, no one's here, dude. And dispatch, like, looked in, you know, like, you know, got real close to the screen. And that's when they noticed he didn't have a head, really. And so they believe that was Frank Nash since he got half of his, head blown off yeah and of course i mean there's a lot of different spirits here because like i said it's over a century old not all deal with the massacre so it's like hard to differentiate between the two however i just wanted to keep talking about union station as a whole and roy inman is a historical photographer and he's been involved with union station and he's heard phantom footsteps like walking up toward him and then they just stopped when they got to him. He also said that there's a lady in white who appears as a reflection in glass doors or on a wall. But when you turn around, no one's there. Because of course, when you see a reflection of someone, you know, you're going to turn around to see who's there. Right. When the station was first built, there was this clock that was built, and it was like a thing. It was like, meet me under the clock at the station. It was like all romantic and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, no one would ever say that to me. Blech, whatever. Also, I would never be on time. It would never be romantic. Like, you would okay, they would say, meet me under the clock at 5 o'clock. Okay, that's a weird time. They would never say that. <laughs> but they would be like, meet me under the clock at 9 p.m. And you'd be like, okay. And then at 9 p.m., you'd be like... Was I supposed to start getting dressed at nine or meet him at nine? That's literally what would happen. Wait, leave my house at nine or meet him at nine? (laughs) I should probably start getting dressed at nine. Okay. Yeah. Back to TikTok. Right. Yeah. And then midnight, be like, oh, hi. Why does nobody love me at midnight? I mean, God, I feel attacked. But where's the lie? (laughs) Well, one guy was attacked. By his heart. He had a heart attack. Oh, shit. <laughs> R.I.P. I'm sorry. But he did. He he was underneath the clock waiting, and he had a heart attack, died there, and they believe he might be the well-dressed spirit who has been spotted under the clock. I feel like, could we say the clock again? Like, both of us. We've said the clock 1,800 Hickory times. Hickory dickory dock. Donna's never under the clock. That's very true. And neither one of us are fucking climbing. <laughs> or running up anything. No. I forgot Just the words for a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Truth. Well, people say that if they ask, like, hey, can I help you? Or if they say hello, all he does is look straight at him, tip his hat, because, you know, again, he's well-dressed. Gentlemanly. Mm-hmm. And then he disappears. I feel like Tiffany just fell in love with him because he tipped his hat. <laughs> <laughs> Well, she might have fell in love with him, but I fell in love with Bedazzled Boo. Oh, Lord. Because you know he went there. It was featured on Ghost Adventures. Oh, gosh. And you know, he had to make an appearance because mob stuff happened. He loves it. They did some thermal imaging during the day because 
Things have happened during the daytime too. It's not just at night. There was a weird figure that they captured to the side that they couldn't debunk on the thermal cam. I'm sure they couldn't. (laughs) Tammy was interviewed by Zach and oh my gosh, y'all, this was back in the day, like 2012, okay? So this is when he was still your boo. This was when he was Ed Hardy AF, okay? Like, yeah, he was bedazzled out. Ugh. But God, he was he was dibic douche then though. So Tammy, she used to be the night supervisor for the cleaning staff. Apparently, she I, I don't know if he was flirting with her or if she really was nervous, and so he just thought like I'm gonna be a goofball and make her feel better or what? I I don't know, but oh, he's just like. Y'all need to watch it. It's on Discovery Plus. (laughs) Oh, my God. But 2012, it's called Union Station. He, like, has Tammy by her neck. You know, like, I mean, he's got his arm around her, you know, but, like, she's shorter. He's in his tall-ish. He's in his... Well, his his jeans, you know, his Jinko jeans, but whatever. He is him. (laughs) He is him, but he's got her, and he's like... When you go to for an interview, sometimes you just have to walk around and, you know, you have to book, like, just, like, talking to the camera. But, like, they're walking fast and, like, I don't know. He's just, like, talking about Tammy to the camera, you know, and, like, that she's nervous or whatever, you know. And, like, do you feel better? Do you feel better? Blah, blah, like, I don't know. It's so fucking weird. I'm, like, I don't know if he's just flirting with her, like, to touch her. Or if he was trying to calm her down, you know, like... No, I think he's just that bizarre. I think so. I don't know. No, I think he's just that bizarre. Uh, I was just like, what? What? Now, after this, they were trying to do the interview, and they were, like, moving shit. And he's like, also, when you're interviewing someone, you want to make sure that something is like rolling past loud as possible, you know? And like, that's funny. Okay. But like what you did with Tammy at the beginning, that wasn't funny. That was weird. Yeah. Like, like I get, I I feel like that's his dating profile. (laughs) That's not funny. That's weird. (laughs) Oh gosh. Anyway, she told him a story that it was around 10, 10 30 And she was just cleaning on these doors. All of a sudden, she saw two feet appear right next to her. And the shoes looked old-fashioned. Of course, she looked up, but she did not see anyone standing there attached to, like, the shoes. And then they were gone. Another time, Tammy was walking through another area and she saw a black shadowy figure. He worked very hard for that interview, let me tell you. Then he interviewed another person, Marcus Miller, who is a security supervisor, and he was doing a walkthrough to do a shutdown. Well, there is this one area that there's toy trains and stuff, and no one should have been there, but he saw this lady in black, like black heels, skirt, stockings. The works. Yeah. And he leaned in to see the whole person and be like, ma'am, you gotta go. Like, you can't be in here. But he didn't see anyone and he was like okay and he was like uh it was a ghost like that person was a ghost and of course zach's like did she have nice legs i knew it (laughs) and that guy was like i mean my wife's gonna be mad but yeah ew gross (laughs) gross 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 uh. (laughs) so stupid Uh, oh zach Oh, let's just, uh, of course, let's even sexualize a ghost. I know, I know. That's just fucking peachy. (laughs) Well, and then when they did some more digging into the history, they found that it used to be used as an immigrant waiting room when it first opened. And like, that might just be a residual spirit, you know, like she might've just been waiting in her assigned area. And hopefully he felt bad. Who? Dibbic douche? You know he didn't. 
Well, then there's another worker, John Kirkpatrick, and he talked about the bathrooms that I mentioned earlier that were supposedly haunted. And he said that he was doing number two and he heard the sinks come on, but he was the only one in there and the sinks are motion activated. And so he was like, hmm. So he was like, if anyone's in here, give me a sign. And then another one came on and then another one. And you could be thinking, well, he's shitting, so he doesn't really know what's going on. It could be just a kid or something. But then he was washing his hands and he was like, okay, do it one more time. Like, just prove yourself to me. And it did. And he was out there and he saw it come on. So it was like the ghost version of you've been shitting so long that the motion activated <laughs> lights go off. Yeah. Okay. But this is underneath the sinks. And you know what? Motion activated sinks sound like a great thing. But in my personal opinion, I fucking hate them because half the time they don't fucking work for me. Mm-hmm. The older ones. Not as hard as the motion-activated soap that's attached to the sink. Yes. Like the ones, you know, that was like the spigot that comes out. Yes. Not like the Not like the kind that's up above, but like uh-huh. the kind that's attached. I can never get that shit out. Uh-huh. Also, though, of course, Zach had to act like he was going number two. Oh, my God. I'm telling you, this, this was... Classic. Like, episode gold. But... I am like, oh my God, Carrie is so Zach because look, you would do it. Y'all can't see the fucking face I just made at I her. know, but you would do it, okay? But he was like, don't film me in here. Don't film me in here, okay? And then Aaron, all he wanted to do, he was like just putting it over and Zach was getting so mad. You know I'd be doing the same fucking thing. Yes, fuck you would. And so then what they did is they filmed uh, his feet. <laughs> I mean, did he have his pants down? Yes. Oh. Yes. That's weird. Like, I don't even, I don't know if it was like, I don't know. Like, but it looked like they were down. But also, he wears really heavy fabric pants. So I don't know, like, what it is. But, yeah, like. What? Why are they so do weird things, man? I know. But just how he was getting so mad. He was like. Dude, don't do it. And I was like, oh my God, this is so carrying me. Because Aaron was cracking up. And Pushing I was like, buttons. That's so me. That's so me. <laughs> and that's so carry. Like, I'll do it, but you can't film it. Anyway, so then they did their whole walkthrough before their formal investigation. Well, Nick's pocket got pulled. And he said he felt like his body had an electrical charge go through it. Then upstairs, Nick felt something, and Zach really didn't. So Zach got him to walk down the hall. And pouted. Basically. But when he does, Zach was like, move this ball to the spirit, you know. And when he says ball, there's this light anomaly that appeared right by the ball and does a full 180 and headed back towards Zach, of course. You know, and so then Zach felt really powerful and Mm -hmm. like, whoa, did you see that? It headed right back towards me, though. You know, they did get an EVP at one point that said spirits. Billy felt tingly stuff all over his body in the same spot, like underneath, like they were upstairs where the ball stuff happened. But like downstairs, right under that spot is where Billy got tingly feeling all under, you know, but then when they went up. And Billy was like, oh, fuck, that's, like, right where this is. So, like, it's, like, that is, like, some... Kind of hot spot. Yeah. And there's one other thing I want to talk about. There's this one other location that's tied to the Kansas City Massacre. It's located at 6612 Edgevale Road. It was known as a safe house for pretty boy Floyd, And it was the house of Vivian, the girlfriend of Miller. So we obviously know there was some insidious deeds going on in the house for sure. But one of their bank robber friends died in the attic. So we do know that there was one death in the house. 
some of the homeowners said that they would close the door, but it wouldn't stay closed. And the same thing with the lights, they would turn back on. And even after locking the attic door, it would open by itself. The attic light would turn itself on and not to be left out. The basement door would often slam shut all by itself and objects would randomly move in the attic, i.e. where that guy passed away. It's not just a train station that has that energy from the massacre. I don't know why I'm just so like, yeah, okay, I can I can get on board with like a residual haunting. But like other things, I'm like, fake. I think it's because I feel people's energy That's so much. That's exactly what I was about to say. So I believe that energy can be left. Yeah. So I can, I'm on board with like a residual haunting being left there. Yeah. And I definitely think that Nash was killed. Like it was not an escape ploy for him. No. I definitely think he was... Like, it was a hit. Yeah, he knew too much. He was a talker, like a smooth talker. He was only for him. You know, like, he was he was looking out for him. Mm-hmm. And J. Edgar Hoover did exactly what he had to do to expand the FBI's jurisdiction, get them guns, and make it become what we know of as the FBI today. Yeah, because corruption was everywhere. Like, when I first heard that I was like oh I see like okay they did it to get them guns to get them more whatever but then when I was listening to your story and it's like oh yeah because there was corruption on a local thing you Mm -hmm. know and so when people are coming in from a federal place they don't know that right so they don't know that Joe Blow is on the payroll of Capone or Pretty Boy Floyd or whatever. And so they don't know that. And that can get them killed. Yeah, just like that episode that I did on Miriam Rodriguez. If you haven't listened to it, skip this. But, you know, when she goes all vigilante and it's like the local police are in the pockets of the cartel. And it's not until she gets the federales to help her one of those detectives that's not in the pocket of the cartels that she's able to actually get some arrests made. Yeah. And so does that mean that the federal government's not in somebody's pockets? Nope. Because it sure is. Right. They have, there's corruption everywhere. Right. However, you know. However, I see back in the 1920s where it was much easier to have local police in your pocket. Mm Mm-hmm. Then, you know, like, and then these people coming in that have no way of knowing this and no protection and no, you know, so like, I do get that, but also I do see it from a different standpoint too, where they're like, and now we're going to be powerful. Like, this is where we make our move, you know? So, I mean, it's kind of, but that's how everything is, you know, like, and this is it y'all, you know I mean? hello, it's like the downfall of MySpace and Facebook is like, and this is it, y'all. This is where it is. And like, we all use Facebook. We all hate it, but we all use it, right? You know, like, that's it. It, It's that. That is it. It is that. Tit for tat. Well, and it just sucks, too, because it's like, I just hate finding out that these people that you just assume are good or shit you know like who jag or hoover because i totally just watched this tiktok that was like people that you thought were good that were shit and there uh, there's an npr article that just came out like well i say just came out like in january of this year it talks about this documentary that exposes these wiretaps on martin luther king jr and how the fbi like They're basically bugging him and trying to prove that he was like this communist and all this stuff and basically told him he should die by suicide. All they got on him was that he was having an affair and tried to blackmail him with it to end civil rights. And it's like, you're shitty. You're shitty. You're shitty fucking shitty. Yeah. Just stuff like that. You know, it's just like, man, you did something and then you did something. Uh Well, hopefully we're on the mend. 
And next week, we'll be back to regular with our two episodes. Yes. Or two stories, one episode. You know the point. Yes. I can't wait. Please. Please. I know. Let's get back to some normalcy. Please. (laughs) Thank y'all so much for supporting us and being understanding as we've both had, I don't know, two weeks of hell of sickness and all the things. So thank y'all so, so much. And remember. Creep it real. And and don't don't get get scared. scared.